singing the songs like I do often. I try to remember certain things that catches my attention, you know, when we're singing, but usually I forget it by the next song. But the second to last song we were singing, or maybe it was a lot, I don't remember, but the one that said where God was undefeated. You know, it just... And I saw Jeff, I think, lift up his arms about that time, and I thought, you know, what, what does it say in the Psalms that he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet? That all these enemies these, and these kings that rage against the, the Son of God, they had better kiss him. Because he's going to remain undefeated. And they will be put under his feet either through submission, through judgment, or through they submit to him as king now. So just remember that, guys. He is undefeated. In that regard, He is God. He is, he is our sovereign King. And I just pray uh, that, that you guys are encouraged You know, when we go through the Word of God. You know, we're going through 1 Peter really because of the, the, the theme of the book is these people were facing persecution. And so, it's just, it's hitting more, you know, even though we might not be facing it real severely yet, but just seeing what's coming. We, we've got two eyes and a brain, do we not? And um, just just take heart, beloved, that Peter was writing to persecuted believers. And so we can, we can apply this directly. We can let it build you up, let it strengthen you, who it is that, we're, that we are seeking to know in Scripture as we read about Him. He is that one. He is, he is undefeated. He is, he's the only true King. And so I just had thought of that. I wanted to share those thoughts with you. So today, the, the title of the message is The Privilege. I thought we would keep the theme up from last week. The Privilege of Proclamation that we're going to see in our, in our second to last verse that we look at today. But before that, we're going to be talking about just uh, foundation. We're going to be talking about foundation. So I thought we'd speak to that for just a moment. Just the, the whole idea of foundation. You know, I think even in our everyday practical lives, the, the principle of, of having a foundation is so important in so many areas in life. You know, when I think of, uh, when I, or I was thinking of maybe the examples, kids, here's one for you, and we've all been there at one time, but like when you're taking mathematics, arithmetic, okay, it's so important, you've probably been told this by your teachers or your parents, whoever it is that's teaching you, that it's really important to build a foundation in the areas of like addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. If you don't have that as a foundation, uh, Rachel, what happens? They don't. If you can't learn how to add, if you can't learn how to subtract, you're going to have trouble when you start getting up into the algebras and whatever goes above that. I didn't know much about that. But if you don't have a foundation, guys, and you can't add, subtract, multiply, you're going to struggle. Mathematics. Same thing in grammar, right? You learn your nouns, your verbs, your adjectives, your adverbs. You got to have that foundation. You can apply that to really any area of life. Obviously, we've been talking about any structure or building that you're building, a home. You'd better you'd better have a solid foundation. Or you're gonna you're gonna pay for it later. And then obviously, I had to think of uh, something in the in the sports realm, and so I thought back. Being an OU fan, uh, thinking back to the mid-90s when OU, it was their darkest days and they were just terrible. (laughs) 
And, uh, and, then, a, and then a guy named Bob Stoops came in. <clears throat> Turned him around from, from having a losing, three, lose, three or four losing seasons in a row to seven and five the first year. Could have very easily been like nine and three. And then the second year, 13 and 0, they won the national title. And you hear some of his players who played on that national title team, which a lot of the same players that just a couple years before that, they were terrible. And, and they talk about the, the, the key was, was the foundation that he built from the very beginning. Strength and conditioning and discipline. And it changed everything. They said that foundation was not there. And so you can apply that whole idea. I hear Ella back there. Uh, you can apply that to so many areas of life. But what, what about... But what about our lives, okay? And let's just just say our spiritual lives. I mean, that's you know that's what we're talking about, our spiritual lives. Um, I think I quoted this verse last week, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, and he's really, the context of this, he's, he's talking about the gospel that he preaches it is the foundation that you can't build upon. But So he says, For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, but... You'd better not just be preaching the correct gospel message, but you'd better be have your life built on that the right foundation as well. And so, so the question I would have when we when we talk about this foundation that's so important, what we're going to talk about, what happens if we go out throughout our lives and do not build our lives on the foundation? Well, I think a good the best picture of that would be over in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus speaks to that. We'll look at that verse before we look at Peter. Matthew 7. Uh, it, is, it is what we finished out the Sermon on the Mount with several months back. In verses 24 through 29, it, it's really the, it's what it looks like when people do not have a, a, build their life on the correct foundation. In Matthew 7, 24 to 29, Jesus says this, I don't know what your Bible says, but my heading above this paragraph says the two foundations. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Let's stop there. So, guys, he's talking about building your life on the proper foundation. The proper foundation, really in this context, it's not just Christ, but it's really on the Word of God. The words that Christ has been speaking. That's the solid foundation. It's really, and even more so, obedience to that Word. You know, when we talk about in 1 Peter a few weeks ago, remember obeying the Gospel? Obeying the message to repent and to believe? And then building our life upon that? That's the only way we're going to be able to stand on that day. And this day is in Matthew 7. That's Judgment Day. For those who refuse to build their lives upon the rock of the Word of God, upon the the many, many warnings in the Word of God that you've got one life and that this life is short, this life is a vapor, and God commands you to repent and put your faith in Christ. For those who refuse that, they're building their life on sand. 
And when the storm comes, guys, make no mistake, this passage is about eternal judgment. This is not about if you build your life on the sand, you're going to have problems and you're going to have trials. That's not the context. This is judgment day. The only only way we'll be able to stand against that tidal wave of God's wrath is to have our life built on that foundation and entrusted in the One who bore the wrath. And so, it has eternal consequences. What our foundation is. And so that's what Jesus was communicating as He finished the Sermon on the Mount. And so that, that takes us to our text today, guys. We're going to be First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 6-10. through 10. Again, last week I said I thought about preaching all the way 4-10, through 10, but I'm really glad I didn't because all of these verses really needed more attention than that. And so guys, if you wouldn't mind standing, I'm going to read the text now. It's First Peter 2, verses 6-10, through 10, okay? For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to the doom, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You guys can have a seat. Let me pray. Father, I just ask You, Lord, to to encourage and strengthen Your people today, Lord. Father, may may the truth set us free, Lord. Set us free to love You, Lord. Set us free from insecurities we may have, God, by just reading and believing and applying the truth of Your Word, who You are and what You have done for us. So Lord, please by the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, um, transform us, Lord, into the image of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So the first, the first point today we're going to look at is in, is in verses 6 and 7. And we're just going to look at the believer's foundation. We're going to talk about that foundation. The believer's foundation, if you're taking notes. <clears throat> and the first thing we're going to look at... Uh, the first point we're going to look at under that first heading is the fact that it's uh, supported by the Old Testament. And, and Peter's words there in verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. So what is he saying there? Basically, he's just simply saying Peter is supporting his thoughts, the, the thoughts that we looked at last week in verse 4 and 5. He is supporting his thoughts from above with the Old Testament. Now in verses 4 and 5, there wasn't actually any Old Testament quotes but what he's saying is, now he's going to go back to the Scriptures of the Old Testament and support what he was saying last week. That's the idea. This is contained for this. It's contained in the Scripture. And in verse, in verse 6, this, this phrase here, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He has taken that from Isaiah 28, verse 16. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll be there for just a moment. And uh, we'll refer... We will refer to this verse a few times. Really, it's a mix and match 
between Peter and then even Paul will look at some verses where they're really combining some of these Old Testament verses to make their point. But in Isaiah 28.16, just real quickly, God was sending Assyria to judge Ephraim for its idolatry. The leaders had been given over to drunkenness and carnality. If you were to read that passage in that chapter, they were mocking the prophet and his message. And because they would not listen to God's word through Isaiah, God would speak to them through a foreign army in judgment. They had foolishly trusted in Egypt and made a covenant with death and falsehood. And in verse 16, God is rejecting these rebellious leaders in Jerusalem and establishing a cornerstone for a sure foundation. Uh, let, let's read the verse. Because it's, it, it's not an exact quote. It's a little bit worded a little bit differently. In Isaiah 28.16, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Um, so it would be, it would be laid, the, the stone would be laid in Zion, the location of the temple in Israel, which, which hints, this really goes back to last week, it hints at the idea that this new work, this is a new work that God is going to do, would replace the Jerusalem temple, which is what we talked about last week, the spiritual house. And then he says this, guys, in, um, back in Peter, in, in, in verse 6. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious... Or no, stop there. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. Now this is where, looking at the, the Scriptures last week, we don't need to spend much time here because he's, he's repeating. Again, he's, he's confirming what he said last week with the Old Testament. You guys remember when we talked about Christ being the, 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 the choice stone, the chosen one? And, and also he says he's precious in this verse in, in chapter 6. We, we talked about that last week. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. In other words, this is God's chosen one. We talked about that last week. The Messiah. And he's precious to God. He's precious to the Father. He's unequaled in value, in other words. There's nobody like him, right? There's nobody like Christ. It made me think of the, the parable in Matthew 13. The, the pearl of great price, right? Some of these parables where it talks about a man finding this pearl or, or, or seeking for this treasure and being willing to really sell everything he has if he could just have that prize. That's, that's who Christ is. Is Christ precious to us? Is He precious to us like He, like he is to the Father? What, what, is, what is His worth to you in your life? You know, what, what does the Scripture say? For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, what, what's more important than our soul? Let, 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 me, let me phrase it this way. You know, when I ask, what is Christ worth to you? Is there, is there an area in your life where you would say, Christ, I'm willing to follow you except if you call me here? I'm willing to give up anything for You, Lord, but don't touch this area of my life. Is He really precious to us? Is He precious to You? Is He that pearl of great price? Are you willing to give up literally everything if you can just have Jesus Christ? He is worthy, guys, of that kind of devotion. And again, like I always, like I always tell you, I'm asking myself this as well. And obviously as I prepare these sermons, 
You know, we've got to ask ourselves that. Is, is He the pearl of great price in our life? He, he should be. He's worthy of that. He's worthy of that. So the first thing we see that, that He just made the point that, that what He was saying in verses 4 and 5, it's supported by the Old Testament text. The Old Testament Scripture. The second thing we'll see is, and I, and I know it's rather obvious, but we're going to look at the second, the second sub-point is, who is the foundation? The foundation is Christ. One reason I say that, I should have kept my place in Isaiah, that it's really good to make this point real briefly. So just to make the point that, that Christ is the foundation. Because if you look at, if you look at uh, Isaiah 28.16 again, it's, it, it's worded like this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now I think most of us who know our Bibles, we automatically know that's referring to Christ. But listen to how in in Romans 9.33, Romans 9.33 and and Romans 10.11, hold on just a sec. I had so many verses that I didn't write them all down like I usually did. So Romans 9.33 and and Romans 10.11, Paul makes it clear. Uh, it says, Just that as, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And obviously we know the context in Romans 9 and 10. The whole context, Paul's message is the Gospel. Christ. So we know without the shadow of doubt who this foundation is, who this cornerstone is. And then in Romans 10.11, he repeats it. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, will not be disappointed. So this costly cornerstone that the text is talking about, Isaiah phrases it, the costly cornerstone for the foundation. So in other words, it's really talking about the foundation. Uh, I'm not really, have a lot of knowledge with, you know, building buildings, but I do understand a little bit about what a, what a cornerstone is. It's just really really another picture of having a solid foundation. It's the stone that sets all the proper angles for the building. It's very important. John, and John MacArthur says this, you know, to compare Christ as the spiritual cornerstone, he says this, to ensure the perfect precision of God's spiritual house. Remember the spiritual house we talked about last week? That's us. That's the church. To ensure the perfect precision of God's spiritual house, the main cornerstone had to be flawless. And of course, we know He is. Jesus Christ, the One who is flawless. The One who we were pleading with people last night, trying to get them to understand that Christ is flawless. Christ is sinless. And, and if He hadn't, we would not have a sinless substitute to die in our place. He is flawless. This is Christ that we are talking about. And it says, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. The phrase meaning having the idea of being deceived by placing hope in someone only to have your hopes dashed. Have you ever had that, have you ever had that thought maybe in your Christian life? You know that, man, it... Is, is Christ really trustworthy? Can I really? Is He really? Am I? Am I really saved? Is He really going to save me to the end, guys? That's what this word is saying. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. 
Christ is not one that would deceive us and surprise us at the end. Oh, you thought you were saved, but you weren't. That's not Him. Jesus Christ is the only one who is trustworthy. I mean, I think we should trust one another, right? We have good marriages. We should be able to trust our spouse. We should be able to trust one another within this church. But you can never trust another human being fully. Fully, because as long as we're in this flesh, we have indwelling sin. We have the flesh we have to battle with. I mean, we should be trustworthy people. But there is only one that you can bank on it, you can entrust your soul to, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is truth. He is the way and the truth. Remember who He's writing to, guys. Remember who He's writing to. He is encouraging these believers. Your life, you're facing persecution. We're facing all kinds of uncertainties in our life, guys. And you had better hold on to this truth that Christ has you to the end. Christ is trustworthy. Listen to Philippians 1.6. Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. Has God began that good work in you? Have you noticed, can you say with assurance that I know that I am saved, I know that I'm God's because I see the work that He's done within me. Oh, beloved, take confidence that He who began a good work will perfect it to the end. Okay, He has you in His hands. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He said, whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. He didn't say most of them, but if you mess up too bad, I'll cast you out. No, He said, whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed, will not be ashamed on that day. So please take heart in that. In verse 7, he says this, still looking at the foundation being Christ, he says, uh, he says this, this precious value then is for you who believe. Stop there. First of all, the phrase you who believe, guys, in the Greek, it's, it's you who continue believing. Who continue believing. You who continue believing. In the NAS, it's, it's got a word of this precious value then is for you who believe. The idea is respect or honor, okay? And I think this is the, the, maybe the clearest way I can say it, what it's trying to say is these, these believers are honored by God because of Christ. Because of Christ. I mean, that's the only way any of us are ever honored by God. Not because we're honorable, but because Christ was. He's perfect. We're in Him. So these believers are honored by God because of Christ who is precious to the Father. We looked at that in verse 4 and in verse 6. Um, John 5.23, similar language, not exactly the same. But just this idea, guys, it's all about being in Christ, right? The only way a person can be accepted by the Father is coming through His Son. Uh, John 5.23 says this. Christ says this, so that, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. So you can't even honor the Father unless you honor the Son. It's the same language. You come through the Son to the Father. And when we do that, God the Father honors us because of Christ. It's all about Christ. 
So there's not shame. There's not shame. There's not embarrassment. There's not disappointment. But rather, honor for those who can... It's real important to understand that, what it's saying. Continue believing. Right? He who began a good work will perfect it. And why, why is that important to remember that? It's for those who continue believing. In other words, it's not a one-time prayer. Right? It's not a one-time prayer. Yeah, I believed in Jesus. When I was eight, I said the prayer. I signed the card. I wrote it in the back of my Bible. But really, if you looked at my life now, I really don't believe in Christ. I really don't love Christ. I'm really not trusting Christ. I'm really not following Christ. Then you don't fit this category. 2 John 9 says this, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It said whoever abides in the teaching or remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That's the picture of the one who continues to believe. Because there's people they will say, well yeah, I, I signed that card, I said the prayer, but I don't. I, the Word of God means nothing to me. That's a scary place to be. That's the crowd that Jesus says in Matthew 7, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You live your life as if I never, I never spoke. That's the idea. Those who believe, we build our lives around the Word of God. It's not some kind of, not some kind of performance. But those who believe, in other words, are going to continue to believe. We're going to continue to follow Christ to the end. Not perfectly. But when people, when, when people just fall away completely, guys, these are not the ones this text is talking about. So there's always these, there's always these, these encouragements and at the same time warnings in Scripture that we've got to take heart to. So the second thing we see is in verse 7 and 8. We looked at the believer's foundation, who is Christ, right? Building your life upon Christ. Building your life upon His Word. And in verse 7 and 8, the second half of verse 7 and verse 8, secondly, we're going to see the unbeliever's condemnation. The unbeliever's condemnation. Uh, so in verse 7, he says, This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118.22 in this verse, in verse 7, and I believe it is almost an exact quote. For those who, or the, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Uh, hold on just a second, I lost my train of thought. Yeah. So for, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. I'm just going to turn to one verse just, just to show that. Um, Originally, who this was talking about specifically? The, these these uh, builders, or the yeah, the the stone which the builders rejected. Who are these builders that he's talking about? You could say originally that fit the context immediately. In Acts four eleven, there's also a passage in Matthew twenty one where Jesus says the same thing. But in Acts four eleven, Peter was preaching to the Jewish leaders. And he said this in Acts 4.11, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. So this had applied specifically 
to the Jewish leaders. Jesus applied it to them. Peter applied it to them on, uh, on that day when he was preaching to them. But here in this letter, guys, it really, Peter is really applying this same truth to all who reject Christ. Okay, Not just the Jewish leaders, but to all who reject the stone. All who stumble over the cornerstone. This is for all people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in John 12.48, He who rejects Me and does not receive My sayings or My words has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. This warning is for all people, not just Jewish leaders. It's for all people. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a great blessing to being in a, in a culture or being in a church where you get to hear the Word of God on a regular basis. It is. It's a great blessing. Because that's how, as we've seen in this same book, the Word of God is, is what God uses to, to, to save sinners, right? That's His means that He uses. But this passage here in John that I just read, it's also a very dangerous thing. Jesus is saying this very Word, for those who reject Me, this very Word that I speak will be their judge on that day. So in other words, I've said this many times, I don't remember how many times I've said it within this church, but I see in Scripture really two key ways that, that people are going to be judged. The unregenerate on the day of judgment, they're going to be judged according to their sin that they've committed outwardly and inwardly, motives, thoughts, but they're also going to be judged according to the amount of truth that they heard. Somebody who heard the truth week after week and their heart grew harder and harder, the judgment's going to be stricter on that day. That's a, that's a frightening thing. So in verse 8, in verse 8 he says, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Let's stop there. Right here he's quoting Isaiah 8.14. And so we're not going to go back and look at all these. So the point is, we either put our faith in the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, right? That's very clear. We either put our faith in the foundation or we dash our foot against the foundation and we stumble over it. And this is where I said Paul combines um, Paul combines both Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. We're going to read this passage in a minute. He combines these two texts to illustrate the fact that and how unbelievers stumble over this stone of stumbling. That's in Romans 9 again. Romans 9, verses 30 through 32. Paul's going to show us by combining these Old Testament passages, he's going to show us the fact that they stumble and how they stumble. And this is in Romans 9, 30 through 32. He says this in Romans 9, 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as, it, but as, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see it right there? You see how they stumbled? They tried to get to God through works. 
And how many people do that? Whether, whether they're religious people or whether they're just people who are ultimately trusting in their goodness. I'm a good person. I do good deeds. Maybe they are in a certain kind of a religion and they're trying to earn their way to heaven. That's how Paul's saying these people stumbled because they tried to get to God through works. And the Bible is very clear. I, th- I hope you, all of you guys would recognize that. That a man is not justified by the works of a law, right? But through faith in Jesus Christ. Alone, okay? Alone. A Roman Catholic would say, oh yeah, we're justified by, by faith. But they wouldn't by, say by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone, right? We have been saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, right? Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. On and on and on and on. Old Testament, New Testament says the same thing. Abraham was justified by faith. So that's the, that's the stone of stumbling. or that's, that's how men stumble. Because there's only two ways, two options when you, when you get right down to it. To get to the Father. Either by works or by grace through faith. That's it. And so if you go that route, you're going to stumble. You're going you're to dash your foot against the stone. And the Bible also says, I don't have it written down. I don't remember which passage it is. But it says that same stone will crush you to powder on that day. That's, that's frightening, guys. The same stone that will save is the same stone that will judge. And it says this, they stumble because they disobey the Word. They, dis, or they disobey the Word in verse 8. They stumble because they are, the NAS has it, they are disobedient to the Word. So they stumble because they disobey the Word. And just know this, their disobedience and all disobedience comes from a heart of unbelief. Okay? That's where disobedience comes from. It comes from unbelief. John, John the Baptist says in John 3.36, he says, whoever believes in the Son, what has eternal life? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. The Bible always attaches belief with obedience and unbelief with disobedience. And it even has stronger language to speak about unbelief. Unbelief is not just a minor thing, okay? Oh yeah, you know, yeah. I don't, I'm an unbeliever. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this unbelief. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. What can be more evil than to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, than to trample His blood underfoot? The Creator of the universe that came and bled and died a bloody death so that you could have eternal life. And what does an evil, unbelieving heart look like? It looks like, pardon my graphic illustration, but a person basically just giving God the middle finger. That's what it looks like. Unbelief is evil. According to the Scriptures. 
And it produces a, a, a disobedient lifestyle. But it's not, a, it's not a small thing to God. So you have it. You have the pattern here. Unbelief, disobedience, and ultimately ruin or doom. That's, that's what we see. Many who reject, there's many who reject Christ. They stumble. Uh, it's just the idea that there's many in our day. I don't think I'm shedding anything new to you guys, but there's many who reject Christ in our day. Why? Why do they do this? Why so much rejection of Jesus Christ? Why the person of Jesus Christ creates so much hostility, so much... You just mention His name in a room and, and, and it gets tense. Why? For such a, a man that was perfect, a man that worked miracles, a man that grew limbs on people, a man that fed the multitudes, a man that was compassionate, a man that healed the sick, fed the hungry. Why? Why so much disdain? Why so much? Why so many people... I was talking to a young man last night about that. How he, he just so... And I remember being there. I'm not singling him out. I remember living like that. It's just so natural to use the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word. Why? Why not somebody evil like Adolf Hitler? Why not somebody evil like Muhammad? It's always Christ. I asked that young man, why do you think that is? I just want him to think about it. Because Christ is the one true God. And our hearts are evil. So why so so why much why so much rejection of Christ? Because of this fact. Because of moral disobedience to God in their lives. That's why. John 3.19, Jesus said, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. He says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it's an intellectual issue. It's not. They love their sin. They love darkness. They hate the light. So it's a moral issue in other words. So all of this rejection and hatred of Christ which has led to uh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. I, I, I missed a very important part. The next, the next line in the text to make it make sense what I was fixing to say. It says, for they stumble um, because they are disobedient, disobedient to the Word and to this doom they were also appointed. Okay? To this they were also appointed. Now I want you to understand this right here, guys. Maybe you hadn't thought about this. But Peter is trying to comfort his readers here. Okay? With this text that's... It's a heavy one here. Is it not? To this they were destined. Peter is trying to comfort these believers. You think about all of this... All of this rejection and hatred of Christ which has is, which is led to their... His readers and which will lead to ours... Persecution. So these people that are persecuting these Christians, all of this rejection, which leads to this persecution. First of all, he wants them to know that it was predicted by God. We've already seen that it was predicted by God in the Old Testament. So, in other words, he's trying to encourage them. 
This is nothing surprising to God. But even more than that, it was not only predicted, it was planned by God. I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about being in a real life, facing what these believers were facing, and maybe what we'll face, that would bring comfort to me. That would bring comfort. This is not surprising to God. I'm in God's will. I'm in God's will. He's sovereign even over these persecutors. So therefore, because He not only predicted it, but but it was planned by God, therefore they are safe. These believers are safe. Even though they're being hunted down, imprisoned, burned alive, through Nero, sown in animal skins, fed to wild beasts, they're, they're safe. In the middle of God's will. They're, they're sovereign God's wise plan. He's, he's trying to bring comfort. Beloved, God is in control. That's what this text is telling us. God is in control. Don't be frightened. Before I move on, uh, just over two chapters. 1 Peter 4.12 Really, this, again, talking to the same people. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Guys, we're going to be facing some fiery ordeals. And he's telling these these people and us, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange things were happening to you. So even their stumbling and disobedience had been appointed. Just thinking all of their... You think back to Psalm... Psalm 2, and all of the rage, all of the rage going on in that day, all of Nero's rage, all of Biden's rage, all of these communist leaders, their rage, what does God do? What does He do? He sits in the heavens and laughs. You guys remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? God's not surprised. God's not taken off His throne. God laughs. So let's look at that. Verse 8. Uh, we'll continue to look at it. He says, a, he, says a, uh, he says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. Look at that word stumble real quickly. Literally the meaning is tripping over something and falling, right? I mean, that's what you do when you stumble. You trip over something and fall. But figuratively, it's the idea of taking offense at and rejecting. And it says, they're, it says they are... Um, they are disobedient to the Word. Again, it's a present participle. It's not just they disobey, but they are disobedient. And, and it's strong language. It means active or entrenched opposition to God's Word. It's not just kind of cavalier. You know, they're disobedient to the Word. No, this is rebellion. Okay, This is willful rebellion. They don't believe in the Gospel but they are also rebellious against God and His law. That's the idea. It is willful rebellion against God and His law. In Psalm 2, remember it said, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We will not be held under God's law. 
We don't want His law reigning over us. That's the idea. That's what this disobedience is. And it says, to this doom they were also appointed. Or to this they were also destined. I think the ESV and the King James has a phrase like that. To this they were appointed. To this they were destined. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this for a moment, guys. The text, okay, this text is worded so as to leaving the possibility of repentance for these unbelievers. The three key verbs are all in the present tense. In verse 7, they disbelieve. Verse, in verse 8, they stumble and are disobedient. And, th- and that's what it says, th- they were destined or they were appointed to these things. Only to say that their eternal condemnation in this text is not set in stone. Okay? It rather affirms this, that their present rebellion is ordained by God. That's what it's saying. Their present rebellion and disobedience is ordained by God. And it doesn't indicate in this passage whether it will continue throughout their life. Because Peter clearly holds out hope that many of these who are disobedient will come to faith. And for example, in the very or in two verses down in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And in chapter 3, verse 1, again, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them who are, who are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Uh, let, me, let me find a place here. So yeah, it says uh, the fact that the uh, that in this text it's just saying their disobedience is destined or appointed. Okay, but obviously the unbelief and the disobedience, which does continue to the end of one's life and into eternity, obviously would have been appointed by God as well. You can't, you just can't say that for a fact in this passage. It's the disobedience and the rebellion that we can say was appointed by God. So, so how do you respond to God's sovereignty? How do we respond to God's sovereignty? Wayne Grudem says this in his commentary. Even the condemnation of unbelievers will result in greater glory to God. Did we not talk about this last night, Shiloh? Remember? We talked about that with that young man. Everything is is for the glory of God. Even the condemnation of unbelievers will result in greater glory to God in the praise of His justice and power and mercy to those to whom He shows mercy. And so, beloved, let me say this. When we, when we in our fallenness, okay, even as Christians, when we in our fallenness we're not fully sanctified. We don't have our glorified bodies with glorified minds. When we cannot fully understand or comprehend that, which is clear in the mind of God, you know, when you think about God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and how do you reconcile these deep truths when you see both are true? 
When we can't fully understand or fully comprehend that which is clear in the mind of our great God, you know what it's you know what the best thing to do is? It's to be silent before him. That's what the best thing to do is. Romans 9, 19 through 20. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? God is clear in his word that he is sovereign. Okay? And I would I, and I would just I would just encourage you, if you struggle with the sovereignty of God, do what Paul said. Don't talk back to God. Because if God gave us what we deserve, there would be zero people in heaven. But He's merciful. He is merciful. And so thirdly, let's look at the, the title of the message. The, the, uh, the privilege of proclamation. So the third and final main point is chosen to proclaim. Chosen to proclaim. And so the first thing we'll look at that is, is this idea of the language of, of chosen in verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Stop right there. This is all language, guys. This, this, uh, in verse 9, there's some Old Testament quotes here. And it's all language from the Old Testament describing Israel as God's chosen nation. That's where, that's where he's picking up the language. You can see it in Exodus 19, verses 5 and, th- 5 and 6. And also Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20, where it clearly uses the word chosen to describe the nation of Israel. God promises this status to all in Israel who keep His covenant. But again, Peter is now applying this language in, in verse 9 to these believers who, like, remember what we talked about last week? They're a new spiritual race. They're a new spiritual priesthood. That's why it really helped this week by covering some of that last week. Revelation 5.10, it says we're a, a kingdom of priests. I think Jeff mentioned that last week in one of the songs. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a spiritual nation. So it's not based on ethnic identity or geographical boundaries but rather on trust in and submission to the King of Kings. And so, beloved, right here, guys, he's describing what the Bible calls true Israel. Okay? Let's just get that, make that real clear. He's describing true Israel. Listen to what Romans 9, verse 7 says. It says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay? The true Israel of God is not just physical descendants of Abraham. That's what he's saying. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Romans 2.29 But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Okay? And then Galatians 3.29 even makes it more clear. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the promise. That's why I love telling the Hebrew Israelites that I am a true Israelite, and they're not. And it just gets them riled up. It is true, right? We are true Israel. And so, understand this, guys. I'm not going to get into this, but last night at the table we were talking about eschatology. 
And, and I've, I've learned enough about every view that I'll hear people from one view saying something about another view and I'll be like, well, that's not right. They're misrepresenting them. And so a lot of people will say, you know, when you hold to more of a covenant theology and these type of things, they'll say, oh, that's replacement theology. You're just saying the church replaces Israel. That's not true. That's a misrepresentation of somebody who would be maybe an all-millennial or a post-millennial. We're not teaching that the church replaces Israel. But rather, simply, that true Israel is made up of Jew and Gentile. It's really that simple. We're not saying the church replaces Israel. If you want to say anything, it's more of a... Uh, I don't know if the, if the wording would be right. Or it's not replacement, but more of an expansion. It's like, true Israel is not just Jews. It's Gentiles. It's anybody, like, like Galatians 3.29 said, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. You're true Israel. we got a bunch of Israelites in here. True Israel. Through faith in Christ. So that's all that is. That can get, I'm not saying that there's not other people who may teach replacement theology, but that phrase gets thrown around a lot. And I'm like, I don't, I don't believe that. I just believe that the church is uh, made up of Jew and Gentile alike. It's, it's the true Israel of God. So anyway. So now let's look at the, the third point was chosen to proclaim. We looked at the chosen aspect of it, guys. And now let's look at the proclamation aspect of it. Really the title of the message. The privilege of proclamation. In verse, the second half of verse 9, he says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why are you a chosen or, or for what, I, I should say. You're a chosen nation, royal priesthood, all of this language that He's applying to us as the church, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that may, you may sit on your hands and just sit in your Bible studies and see how smart you can get with the Reformed theology. That's not what He says, is it? It says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You see the privilege there? Man, that's a privilege to proclaim, as Paul says in Colossians 1.28, to proclaim Him. To proclaim Christ. Are you writing a song, Charlie? Are you writing a song this week? No. He wrote a song last week during the sermon on the verses. I was like, well, that either means he was really paying attention or he wasn't. I don't know how to take that. But he told me last night, I told him what the title is. He said, well, that's another song coming. So maybe you can write a song about it sometime. But the privilege, guys, to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this is saying. I want to read it again because it's so good. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of of Him, Christ, who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, so that you may proclaim. Isaiah 43, 21 has similar language. It says this, The people whom I formed for Myself will declare My praise. Now in that context, He had rescued His people from Babylonian captivity through the means of King Cyrus of Persia. And so guys, has not God rescued us? Has not God rescued us? 
You better believe He has rescued us. Something much more than a bondage to a nation. Guys, do you understand? We were talking last night about tyranny, right? Tyranny of governments. And it's a true reality that we may be under a tyrannical... Well, we are. I'm not going to say may anymore. We are. Under a tyrannical government. But do you understand in the same context that the true tyrant is sin? you understand that? Sin is a tyrant. Sin is a tyrant. The devil is a tyrant. The devil hates you. And sin will damn your soul. But we have been rescued from sin. Galatians 1, I believe it's chapter 4, it says He laid down His life for us. In the NAS it says, to rescue us from this present evil age. That's why Christ came and He died, to rescue us. We were rescued, guys. When, when God saved you, you were rescued. You were delivered from sin. Your sin. The penalty of sin. The judgment of God in eternal hell. We were rescued from that. Rescued, delivered from the power of sin. So we're no longer under tyrannical rule of sin. A slave to sin. But we've been rescued. Not from a nation, but from the bondage of sin. Out of darkness. Colossians 1.13 For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's grace. Rebels. He did this not to good, with good people. Well, He looks like a nice one to rescue. That's not the way it was. None of us were nice. The book of Psalms described this as... I don't remember where the passage was, but just as venomous, venomous our hearts as... Venomous cobras. Language like that. Vile. But He rescued us in this passage here. Out of darkness into His marvelous light. You understand the ramifications, guys. That we were in darkness. Spiritual darkness. Headed towards eternal darkness. But our great God in His mercy rescued us. It says to proclaim the excellencies of Him. Meaning to proclaim all of the perfections of His being. We can try to describe God. We can study His attributes and never know Him fully. But I would say proclaim Him. Proclaim Him. Proclaim who He is. The Gospel is more... No, that's, that's even the wrong word. The Gospel is not... God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, we need to proclaim who God is. That you are a sinner and you are in the hands of an angry God. He is angry with wicked every day because He's good. Proclaim who He is. He's holy. He's just. People have to understand that. He's just. He will punish sin. But He's also merciful, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute. Listen to Psalm 51.13. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Again, our redemption is not about our best life now, guys, but it's about glorifying Him with our lives. 
Revelation 4.11 Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and because of Your will, they existed and were created. Worthy is Him. He is worthy of all of our praise, guys. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our proclamation. Psalm 71.15 My mouth shall tell of Your righteousness and of Your salvation all day long. Even though we all battle with fear, guys, anxiety when it comes to opening our mouth for Christ, is it not a blessing once you do it? You're sitting here and you're going, why did I ever let fear stop me? You're just telling this person about Christ, about how good He is, about what He has done for you. I have made the Lord God, Psalm 73, 28, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God's got a lot of works that we can tell about. Amen? I mean, you can, man, you can start going through the Old Testament and talk about all the works of God, beloved, but don't ever miss the most essential works that we must communicate, and that is the life, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the works we need to communicate to others. The person and the work of Christ. That's the message. That that same God who is just and who will punish all sin, for those who believe, He punished Christ. That was His work on the cross. The perfect one. The one who didn't deserve it. Bore the wrath so that you could be rescued. So that you could be free. And then lastly, beloved, we're just thirdly, under the last point, we're just looking at mercy. Mercy. In verse 10. For you are not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a quote out of Hosea 1.6. And so like Israel who was rejected by God in that passage, these believers were no people that He's writing to right here. At one time, they were no people. They were under God's wrath, like all of us were, who did not know Christ. But look at the, look at the passage in verse 10. It says, You are not a people, but now. But now you are. But now. Not by merit, right? Not by works but God who has mercy. You are not a people, but now you are. And it's because of God's mercy. Listen to Romans 9.16. So then, it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Are we grateful people for God's mercy? Beloved, check your heart on that. Don't let your heart grow cold on that, on the mercy of God. Let that be the burning fuel that, that, that fuels you in your love for Christ. That God is merciful. Again, what did I deserve? And what did God give me? He gave me nothing but mercy. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. We were by nature children of wrath. And what's the next two words? But God. But God being rich in mercy 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So when Ronnie and I was at the bus station on Thursday, the story that I shared is a man that I've gotten to know pretty well down there, Tony, and that I've seen God begin to soften. And so he sat all three hours, listened to basically four sermons, 45 minutes each, asked for pen and paper twice so he could write notes. And so on my second time up, sometimes when you preach up there, you just preach. Sometimes you may look at a passage, preach through a passage. So I decided I was going to preach through Ephesians 2. And so Tony's go, Tony said, you got some more paper? And a, you know, so I, I filled up this page. And he said something along the lines of, he heard me, Ronnie had said something about being born again, being dead in sin, so I thought, I'll just bounce off that, preach Ephesians 2. And Tony heard me talking about that, and he goes, what did you say the title was? I said, oh, you want the title of the message that I'm about to preach? Because I mean, Tony was excited, man. There would be people that would show up a little, a little late and Tony would go, man, you, you missed it. The service is over now. And we'd be like, no, it's not. we still got a few more. And so he asked me, he goes, what did you say the title was? And I said, but God. And so I preached this passage down to about verse 10. And so him and the other guy, Kenny, Kenny was a believer. I know Kenny's a believer. It, it was such a blessing, man. I had to hold the tears back looking at watching Kenny. Kenny, again, he, he was a believer. He was just he was just so thankful we were there. He said, You guys bless my soul. And it, it literally his last words when I was getting in my car, he just looked at me and he's like, But God. <laughs> because he I mean that was church for him. And of course I invited him like I always do. I don't know if he'd have a way to make it. But man, he was a blessing. What a blessing that man was. But yeah, I mean that's the first time I've ever been asked. Number one, for a pen and paper so somebody could take notes on the streets. It was very encouraging from a guy who I was his enemy about a year ago. Um, and then and then asked me what the title of the message is. But God. But they were both just like, but God. After we got through, they just kept going, but God. But guys, do you have that same excitement? But God. We were by nature children of wrath. I mean, I don't know if they had ever heard that text preached, but they were they were just like, their eyes were... Open because you go through some pretty heavy stuff in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4. We're dead in our sins. We're hopeless. You know, we live according to the course of this world. And then all of a sudden, you think it's hopeless. And then, but God. So I hope you guys are encouraged when you hear those words, but God, are in our text. And Peter, but now, we were not a people. We were dead in our sins. But now, because of God's mercy, He has made us alive together with Christ. And then just one last thing, when you, when you take all this, this proclamation in verse 9, this mercy in verse 10, beloved, there's no greater privilege, there's no greater privilege than to be a recipient of His mercy. I don't do this a lot, but can I hear an amen? amen. There's no greater privilege than to be a recipient of the mercy of God And then next, I would say there's no greater privilege than proclaiming that message of mercy to others. So that should help tell us what we should be proclaiming. That God is merciful. We have to, we have to, don't ever, don't ever get, try to get so committed to the scriptures, you know, because we we, we tend to, in, in our day, 
in the, in the American church, if you want to use that word, the holiness of God, the justice of God really kind of get left out. So we try to focus on that. But don't ever lose sight and lose balance that God is a merciful God. And we've got to communicate that to people. I mean, there are people sitting out there, they do understand their sin. And they don't think there's any way God can forgive them. And we need to communicate, but God. God is a merciful God. That's why He sent Christ. And I'll, and I'll close with this. Have you guys heard of Mercy Ministries? Mercy Ministries? I mean, I knew I'd heard Mercy Ministries, so I kind of just looked it up. Not real in depth. Most of the time, Mercy Ministries will be things like, you know, helping battered women. Um, just helping anybody with physical needs. Those things are great. But I will say this. If those ministries are not preaching the gospel, the true mercy of God, they're not truly mercy ministries. So, so I want you guys to have true mercy ministries by proclaiming God's mercy to sinners. Okay? And we'll close with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for God, just this, uh, this text. And, and Lord, we saw... Lord, so much in this text. Just your, your holiness, Your sovereignty, Your mercy, God. And I'm so thankful, Father, that, that none of Your attributes cancel out another. Lord, You're perfect. You're perfect in all Your ways. You're perfect in all Your works. Your Son is perfect. We're so thankful He was perfect because we have a perfect, the perfect sinless Lamb of God who died in our place. And Lord, we know You're perfect as the song reminded us of. Lord, You're undefeated. No enemy will ever stand against You and prevail. God, they will all be put placed under Your feet one way or the other. And so Lord, help us to have hearts full of mercy towards those who do not know You. Lord, help us to be proclaimers of Your truth. Not, not greedy with it, Lord. Not, not just learning it so we can have it. But Father, so that we may proclaim it. Your Gospel is a, is a life-saving Gospel. It sets us free from our sin. sets us free from the eternal consequences of sin. It sets us free from the, just the tyranny of sin in this life. And so Father... Lord, just help us, God. Help us in our fears, Lord. We all have fears and anxieties. Fears within, like Paul said. And so, Lord, I just ask that You would give everybody in here, Lord, just confidence, not in themselves, Lord, but in Your Word, that we're just simply to proclaim it. We can't change the heart. But we've been called to proclaim a very simple message. And so everybody in here, if they know Christ, they can proclaim that message because they have believed it. And so Lord, I just pray that You'd give them courage. I pray that You'd give all of us courage. I pray that You'd give us compassion. Father, as Ray Comfort has said, help our, help our, that, that our compassion would swallow those fears that we have, Lord. That, we would, that the compassion for people would drive us, Lord, past what our fears tell us. And so Father, we just thank You for our great Savior. He's such a mighty Savior. He's mighty to save. And I thank You for, for everybody in here, Lord. 
I pray that, that those who do not know You, Lord, that You will draw them to Yourself, God, that they will experience that mercy and that kindness and that, that transformation of the Gospel, Lord, that You offer sinners, Lord. We love You. We praise You. In Christ's name, Amen.